Good morning. If you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17, we'll be looking at the, uh, if you will, the complementary passage to the scripture reading, which we've just had, which was Romans 13. This is Peter's rendition of very similar thoughts, as today you're going to see our, our theme is going to be about government and conscience. Government and conscience. And we'll be wrestling with some ideas because these ideas can be difficult to mitigate in our current age. So if you will, turn with me again to 1 Peter chapter 2, following as I read, verses 11 through 17 from the New King James Version in this case here. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, be, may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, once again, we're just so blessed to come to you, to worship, to give praise to you through the reading and the preaching of your word. We find, Lord, that in these truths that they transform our lives, they give us grace, they give us mercy, they give us insight into how we can live. They are not just high ideas, but they are ideas that are very practical, Lord, and so help us to put into practice our faith so that we might be good, not only heavenly citizens, but, heaven, but citizens here below. And so we give you this praise, this honor, this glory in the name of Christ. Amen. So we might be tweaking a little bit with the, the PA system. So if it gets unbearable, uh, signal to me. And uh, the guys are doing a great job. Thank you so much. You're awesome. Um, interesting passage, isn't it? Very interesting. Suddenly Peter has gone from intense theology, if you will, I love Peter, by the way, the way he progresses. Last week we were talking about all these privileges of being a Christian. Of course, in the face of persecution. And all of a sudden there's a bit of a transition to more practical things. But really, the reality is our theology and our practice are not that separated, are they? They're really linked together. I was in a church years ago and it was a bit of a, what I would call a legalistic church, and they kept pounding on the pastor to preach more practical sermons. And, and I think what they really meant was we just want a bunch of do's and don'ts and didn't want the core theology behind it. But the reality is that it is what we really believe that should 
spill out into our life, how we live. Sometimes Christians become averse, though, to these imperatives in the Bible. Almost like in trying to defend grace, we overlook some of the things that are rather direct and rather clear. Peter's not really hiding anything from us. He's being pretty clear. And today he, he brings his clarity out in a, a series of points. These points aren't really hidden. Um, I end these all in ing, okay? My points are very, very clear. He says, you're going to abstain from something, abstaining. You're going to conduct yourselves in a certain way. Submit yourselves in a certain way. Um, we're going to do things a certain way. And we're not going to abuse certain privileges. Peter's pretty clear. He gives these imperatives. So really, the reality is that in our grace-filled lives, there are still commandments from Christ in the Word that we can abide by by grace. This isn't doing these things so that we merit salvation. Right? This is living God's grace in our lives. And um, I, I have a friend, and he was saying, boy, my church is so averse to any type of imperatives. They're almost, he used the term antinomian. You know, he, they just, you know, we can't use grace in the wrong way, maybe to justify bad behavior. That's going to come out, by the way, in the sermon at the end. Sometimes we use liberty for license to do things and justify our behavior that isn't correct. This is quite a powerful passage. Of course, it deals with such a difficult topic, right? Government. Now, we're not talking politics. We're talking human government. It's interesting, one commentator, I think that Matthew, Matt, you share some of these same likes and commentators as I do, but he says, the admonition given here in this text, the necessity of which must be admitted in our days without question. This was like 120 years ago, by the way. He's saying, we have a problem with government today, but look back to the Roman Empire, he says. Uh, he says, it was badly needed in the days of the Christian church. These admonitions that Peter gives about, you know, obeying the law of the land, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, sometimes we think we live in a unique time that history has never seen anything like what we're going through. I can guarantee you there have been times throughout history that have been as challenging as what we have been through in even the past several years. And if ever there's been a time that's been challenging, I'm surprised that any churches survived the COVID thing. I know of churches who had so much dissension. Uh, I think you must have done a pretty good job. I don't know exactly how it worked out, but there's dissension in all sorts of direction, right? And, and, and I don't even need to bring all those details up. It's confusing. It's difficult. And um, some of it was related to what is the government doing, right? Is there overreach? Some of it was related to how should I be a good brother or sister in the Lord, right? Very complex issues. Uh, we're not really going to touch up 
on those things specifically, but hopefully through the Word of God, we can develop some ideas that can certainly help us because the church will face things in the future, probably things worse than COVID. Imagine that. Things more difficult than that. The church has through history. This is nothing new. Notice, I want to take you back to the text here because <laughs> I love the way Peter jumps into it. The biggest problems that we have are really not government. Look at verse 11. He says to this, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. This is his lead-in, by the way, to his discussion on practical things. The biggest problem, you can just picture it, he says, no, no, it's not out here, it's in here. Here's the big problem, right? I know Mike Green was here a few weeks back, preached a pretty good sermon on indwelling sin. We do have a war going on within us. Peter acknowledges it. Notice his language. I beg you, I beg you, abstain, keep away from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Now, some of these were probably younger believers, newer converts to Christ. I personally think Peter was speaking mostly to the Gentile believers. I know there's some disagreement on this. There are several text passages in through the book that give me that indication when he talks about, you know, uh, you've left the traditions of your fathers. I, I think there are some, some points which, which tend, to, tend to point to the fact that Peter was writing to to believers that were not just Jewish people. They were believers from all different nations uh, at this point. I know there's some who disagree with that. Um, he begs with them. He says, you're sojourners, you're pilgrims. We, we mentioned these words early on. In fact, right at the beginning of the book, Peter used similar phraseology. Here he uses two words. One means the first one, the first word, sojourner, in this case, means that you're somebody who lives in a strange house. That's actually what it literally means. A stranger in your household. And then the second idea is that you are from a strange country. Strange country. You're reading a, a book on Wednesday nights, Pilgrim's Progress, right? Why? Because Bunyan had a very clear sense of this in his life. He was persecuted. He spent 12 years in prison because at that time, the government said, you cannot preach the gospel in a non-dissenting church. Bunyan was a Baptist, and he believed that God had called him to preach. He was a pastor of a church. He kept preaching. He was arrested. He felt that his life was, he was a pilgrim. He didn't really belong. And so we are in this sense, this world is not our home. We long for heaven as our home. We live for Christ. We long for heaven. We live every day. We, we used to tell the kids at the Christian school, it was a school that was trying to do this classical thing. Corey can tell you more about it. Than, and I was teaching in it. And uh, uh, we taught Latin all things like why latin well it's it was a good building block language and 
A lot of times I'd say to the kids, carpe diem, you know, and you've heard that, seize the day. The whole statement is really a bit, the, the Latin statement was actually a little bit um, not correct, but I kind of Christianized it, and I was like, hey, listen, what are you going to do today for Christ? Let's seize the opportunity for today. You know, in a sense, the secular statement says, because we don't have tomorrow, let's make the best of today. As Christians, we have tomorrow. We have tomorrow with the Lord. But today, we do everything for the glory of God. We revitalize the day. We live every day to the utmost for his glory. Whatever he's given you to do, it may seem small, insignificant. It's not to the Lord. You do it for his glory. We're sojourners. But the greatest battle that we have is the enemy within, abstaining from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Sometimes um, the, the language here is that of if you indulge in your sinful appetites continually, that it actually tears the soul apart. It does. Body and mind. Newer Christians often need to come to this realization, right? And even us older ones. There's some besetting sins that keep reoccurring in our lives. It drags us down. The war within, sinful indulgence, breaks one's soul apart. Yielding to sinful lusts works against the mind, works against the body. Peter will address this later on in his, his book in chapter 4. In, in chapter 4, verses 2 through 5, you can just listen as I read. He says this, that we should no longer live the rest of our time in the flesh for the lusts of men. But for the will of God, we have spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. It's, it's so funny. Sometimes I... I is, is I encounter different people in evangelical circles and the way they talk about life, they're just living for the here and now. There are um, churches out there that just seem to promote a lifestyle that's so contradictory to what God has in his word. Peter's begging us. He's saying, hey, listen, don't just indulge in your sinful appetites. They're restrained by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. And that's really where it starts, right? The problems that we see facing without, outside in the world, and they can seem ominous. This past couple years, to me, has been very difficult. I've struggled a lot. But that's actually nothing compared to the struggle within, the battle over sin. The greatest army in the world is not as powerful as the power of the cross of Christ. What he does when he has victory over our sin. The greatest political triumph is not greater than the cost of that cross. Right? So Peter starts out in the right place. I like verse 12 too. Let's move on a little bit here. Because he wants us, he says conducting yourselves 
First you abstain. You're to be abstaining from fleshly lusts, but you're to be conducting yourselves honorably among the nations. Okay? Let me read the verse. Verse 12. It says, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when you, they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Wow. So what's he talking about here? Conduct yourselves. That's how we live. That's how we walk. It's our Christian walk. And he says honorable. And that's a word for good, right, or virtuous. He's saying walk in goodness. Goodness. Honorably means good. It appeals to the moral side. Live right. Not legalistically. As if we're meriting God's favor by our works. But under His grace, by His grace, through His grace, for His glory, we live our lives. Through the Word of God. Remember those Psalms, right? Thy word have I hidden my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Psalm 119, 105. The beginning Psalm, the first one, right? Talks about who's the person planted firmly, growing by the rivers of water, right? It's the blessed man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it doth he meditate therein day and night. The Holy Spirit works through his word as well. We need the Holy Spirit. He's a part of us as a believer. So we conduct ourselves honorably by his grace, for his glory, through the word. But this idea of goodness brings up something of the conscience. Because we're going to be talking about government today. And we'll lay some ideas out. But we also want to talk about the human conscience. The human conscience was designed by God at creation. It's a part of the image of God in us. God created us in his image. We used to say, you were created with the imago Dei, is what they say, the image of God. And a part of that involves this idea of human conscience, which is a reflection built into mankind of the moral law of God. However, man has fallen. He's fallen into sin. His conscience has fallen too. A vestige of it remains in the world. Many times, unbelievers understand the basics of right and wrong. There's no power in their life to overcome. Right? What does Christ do through the Holy Spirit, through his word? He restores in us, right? We're born again, brought into a living hope through the power of Christ, through the resurrection of the dead. We're made into the image of Christ. The Holy Spirit, by means of rebuilding the conscience which has been defiled, enlightens our heart. So we live a life as Christians where the rubber meets the road, right and wrong meets day to day. We're actively engaging our conscience. Do you agree with that? You can learn a whole list of do's and don'ts until you practice it. When it meets the actual reality, this is where the practice of Christian faith comes into play. Sometimes we'll see as Christians that 
there are areas with the government, even though we'll be taught to, to yield to that, where for the sake of conscience, we can't. And one of those instances will be the book of Acts, right? Where Peter, remember what he said? In chapter 5, we're there today. He says, I have to obey God rather than men. And it was an instance, right? Where for the sake of doing good, he had to defy, if you will, um, openly go against an authority. That's not the norm, by the way. These are very few and far between things, but we want to deal with it. So in this, this topic today, we're wrestling with something that we're going to see is very firmly laid down. God has ordained this idea of government, but he's also ordained this desire to do what's good and right in us. And sometimes certain things come into conflict with each other, and we as Christians do have to decide, are we going to do what's right? And then there's a right way to do what's right. And it's not taking up arms, fighting a rebellion. It was often suffering persecution for the glory of Jesus Christ, giving him praise and honor. It wasn't fomenting a rebellion. Christians have been persecuted throughout the ages. We need to realize this. We don't always tie in. I know sometimes there are Christian groups that would really fit well with the zealots of the early first century. They were ready to fight the battle. That's not the way. We fight with other means. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're spiritual. They're more powerful. God works one soul at a time. He works one believer at a time in building up faith. We conduct ourselves honorably among the nations. It says here that they, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. <laughs> Why is it that doing good attracts the ire and sometimes the persecution of others. Why does it work that way? Have you ever questioned that? I mean, you go all the way back to the beginning and you see this in the scripture. There's a passage that says, talking about Cain and Abel, it says, um, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, this is in 1 John, actually we did a whole section on this back in the day there, a few, few months back. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and was murdered and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Okay, so sometimes doing what's right in the world draws the eye of those who don't want to do the right thing. And, a, and, and the reality is, it's even bigger than this. As Christians, we have a worldview that just diametrically opposes others. Our ideas are, are different, and we have a clashing of ideas. Even though we're operating in love and grace, um, sometimes we draw the ire of persecution. 
in simply trying to be good. It's not that we're trying to be separate or elitist. You know, the Christian church isn't to be like that. We're not in a fraternity. I mean, there's a church I used to call the eternity fraternity because I felt like they were too snobby and kind of precocious. It's like to be a part of it, you had to you know, be of a certain income class level. And uh, it's like, what, why? We're, we're not trying to, to isolate the world. We love people, right? We love people. We want to reach out. Sometimes, because of doing the things that are righteous, living a life for Christ, it draws that, uh, that, that backlash. And, um, you know, we just have to keep plugging on. We're going to experience that. When you realize that that's actually happening, we're supposed to rejoice in it. That's hard to do. <laughs> but there's times at work where we'll feel left out. We just don't quite fit. But let me tell you, as a Christian, you're not left out. You have so much to give, so much love to give. It's hard sometimes. We're, we're different. We don't do everything, you know? You know, your, your, your family, we, I can tell you, just not making alcohol the center of every holiday, sometimes we'll have people that won't come over. <laughs> if you want to do that, that's your choice. If you want to make those things, but being different doesn't always lend to individuals who love what you do. Living for the Lord is not always an easy thing, right? There are seasons where these things cover. Uh, notice that the last part of that verse, it says, but, this is verse 12, I just want to read that to you. It says, by your good works they may observe and glorify God in the day of visitation. What's that mean? What does that mean? Well, what that means is that the righteous works that you do, the words that you say, the actions that you have out there in the world, sometimes they come due in a person's life. God calls them to himself and they trust in Christ in a powerful way. And they're going to remember they're going to remember those believers who treated them graciously and nicely. They're going to remember those people who acted right and righteous. And sometimes that's a powerful thing to see. I had an interesting experience yesterday as Carrie and I are involved in a, in a prison ministry. Really, Carrie's been involved with this for years, and I'm just kind of riding the coattails. And so we were able to go in yesterday to the St. Louis prison. And um, it's really weird because I hadn't been there since, since my dad was a chaplain years ago. I'd go in with him, and, and it was just amazing to see this. And um, the, these men were in a, in a seminar for, I think it was the third day, and in our group, we had quite a few of us, were going in to sing for them. And the way the seminar, very doctrinally sound messages, and, and these men were all, you know, bowed down, and we just surrounded them with our group and then 30 prisoners that were inside team that were Christians. 
and just started, we sang hymns. And these men were weeping. Do you think they remembered something from their past, right? A mom or a grandma who, who sang a hymn to them, right? Never give up. Don't give up on people, right? The day of visitation comes, and they'll remember. They'll remember that. Wow, this guy, he said this thing, or this lady did this. Right? God uses us in simple little ways. Powerful. And we haven't even gotten to the government part, so uh, I may have to truncate this a little bit today. We might have to do a part one, part two thing. You're saying, oh, no, he won't. I bet you he won't. As a kid, I probably would have nudged my sibling and said, um, 10 bucks, he doesn't do it, or something like that. You know, uh, No, I wouldn't have done that. Um, but uh, let's at least kind of indulge it a little bit here. So I'd like to take us to this next verse. We've noticed that the bigger problem is us, right? Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Conduct yourselves. How? In an honest, a right way. Remembering people are watching. People see. God can use us. He uses us even in our trials and adversity. But here I want to read verses 13 to 14. At least start bridging this topic. It says, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Okay, so now we get into this meat here of what's he talking about? The ordinance of man, first of all. And we read that parallel passage in Romans 13 to, so you could kind of see that Paul, Paul hit this same theme, right? This isn't unique to Peter. Paul has the same idea. Paul probably fleshes it out even better. Peter touches on it here. He uses the term ordinance. That really means the creation of man. This is an ordered government structure. Okay. He says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as those who are sent by him for the punishment of evil doers, for the praise of those who do good. The creation of man is this idea of a government that is actually appointed by God. In Romans, we read that let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Jesus reiterated this. Remember Pontius Pilate said to him, and here's Pilate's arrogance, right? He says, you know, Pilate said unto him, Do you speak this way to me? Don't you know that I have the power to crucify you and have the power to release you? And what did Jesus say? Remember? He said, You could have no power at all against me except it were given from you from God above, right? So even the governing authorities, God has ordained, and they have a purpose. And the purpose is talked about here, right? What's the purpose? Well, look at the text. It says to punish evildoers. 
They're sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. All right? That's probably, we could maybe summarize that as one of the main purposes of human government. In Midland, I know the police cars have to serve and to protect. I appreciate that, right? To serve and to protect. Government, by the way, is designed by men but ordained by God. This is a weird combination. Ordained means this, that God denotes the ordering or arrangement like a military company or an army. God sets them in order, assigns them their location, changes and directs them as he pleases. But this does not mean that he originates or causes the evil and dispositions of rulers, but he directs and controls their appointment. There are a lot of evil and horrible things that have happened by human government. There's a whole lot of good. I'm very thankful for the, I'll say this, in the Midland Police Department. Very thankful. I, I think that when they're doing their job and the local ordinances are being kept and I feel very safe. I also like having my dog Tucker too, but uh, you know, um, he likes to bark. That also helps me feel safe. But um, God has ordained them. They're not perfect. Why? Because it's a creation of men and men have what? A fallen nature, sinful tendencies. The scripture says submit. What does that mean? Does that mean obey everything always without questioning? Is that what submit means? I don't think so. But it does mean to get on the, the right team. And that's really the idea. I don't know if you've ever coached a sport, but if you've ever had a player who just wants to do their own thing, and they don't really kind of come under the structure of it, how do you work with that? Have you ever had that? Um, I had the privilege of coaching JV basketball for many, too many years, you know, and, uh, and you learn a lot about young men, right? How they work. But that's really the idea, coming underneath. If you're not willing to listen, comply. But it doesn't mean that you don't question because there's another law at work as well, right? It's the law of conscience. It's doing good and right and just. And so as Christians, we actually have this higher standard. We have God who is our standard. His judgments, his righteousness, they're ordained by him. We don't blindly follow because there's, that's not right. We could be easily caught into something that, you know, takes us in the wrong direction. I'm going to give an example of that, hopefully. I may leave on this point and jump forward, so, because you've been so patient. You're very patient people. Very, very patient. I know, um, if there's anything that comes up at Sunday dinner, it's always how long that message was. <laughs> Hopefully you're not uh, 
what do they call it, eating roast pastor? <laughs> You've heard of that before? Um, but um, we don't submit blindly. It's okay to ask questions, right? Notice in the text he talks about these kings, these highest level. These governments were wretched. You know, in the Roman Empire, um, prior to Nero, I think that um, Claudius was put to death by poison. So this is all during the time of Peter, right? He's living during all these emperors. Claudius was put to death. There was a big turnover in the empire, right? Um, Caligula, <laughs> in a violent manner, died. He was another emperor. And then Nero, the guy at the time right here. These, these, these weren't nice administrations. They didn't agree, probably, politically with what most Christians did. In fact, they didn't at all. I think that, that Peter does say this, maybe not get too involved, you know, not get too involved to the point that we lose focus of the most important things, which is Christ and his kingdom. It's possible that we can become so involved with the politics that it just erodes us. It has us down. There's something bigger happening out there, right? And it's a lot bigger than the world stage. The purpose of government was mentioned, we said, probably to serve and protect. The further society, by the way, scampers away from the knowledge of the true and living God, the worse society often becomes. The Roman Empire was no exception. I don't know if you ever had the privilege of reading The Rise and Decline of the Roman Empire. I had the abridged version, read through it. Not The, the real thing is like this massive tome. You'll, you'll never make it through, but there were a lot of elements of corruption. There were some seeds that were very good. The ru Roman rule of law, that's something that kind of comes from a divine element. The rule of law is a good thing. Um... You know, I know we often hold up our, our form of government, and, and there were some good things, but I tell you, it was, it was also very much predicated on the Founding Fathers and their faith because it operated with a group of individuals who were predominantly individuals who were faithful. They had a fabric of morality coming from the Holy Word. We, we don't really have that in our day. We've lost that in our culture. Um, I have theories, by the way, on, on that, but I, I think this isn't the place for them. Government is not optional. Sometimes we put ourselves under different authorities in life, and we leave them, right? We can come and go. We can join an organization. When we do, we abide by their bylaws because we respect it. We don't go someplace thinking we're going to disrupt it that's ridiculous. A lot of people do that. They just want to undermine a work or undermine an organization. Why would you do that? But there are a lot of things that we don't have to be underneath. If we don't respect it, then we don't have to be a part of it. And, and there's so many things to join out there, right? What do you join? 
organizations. Uh, but when it comes to government, yeah, you can go to another country, but you're going to have the same problems. Probably worse. Very likely. Peter knew this, right? We're going to be under it in some way or another. And as Christians, we ought to be good citizens, right? We ought to be good citizens. We're not naive. We don't think everything that the government does is on the up and up. Government's tipped its hat into way too many things this past few years, declaring you know, them to be the scientific base. You know, you hear things based on um, drug companies and clinical trials, and it's like, okay, uh, that's not the scientific method. You know, that's uh, the government declaring something to be that maybe it's not, okay? We don't know. The government is not always right, but God has put it there, right? He's put it there, and... As Christians, we're supposed to be the best citizens that we can be. We're still giving glory to the Lord. Now, I want to just talk about a couple exceptions where the law of conscience comes into play. First one we mentioned earlier, right? There are examples in the scripture where an individual, for the sake of conscience, stands up to an edict or a proclamation because it's unjust and it's not right. One was Peter. They said, don't preach, and he did. Now, there's two instances in Acts where it actually says almost those same words. We ought to obey God rather than men. Okay, so Peter knew what he was supposed to do. The Lord said, hey, go proclaim the word, actually, in Acts chapter 5. He had just been freed from prison. Remember that? You guys have just been in there. And uh, he's freed from prison. And what does he do? The Lord says to him, this is what you're supposed to do. Go preach. He goes and he, they preach. And the governing authorities, the people who were sitting in Moses' seat, they were the, uh, at the time, remember? And the Lord said, you know, do as they say, but not live like them. They're in Moses' seat. They have that position of authority. They were in like a quasi-governmental structure. And, and Peter said, no, no. This is what the Lord wants us to do. Now, there are a lot of other examples in Scripture. I kind of picked my favorites. Daniel is probably my favorite. Do you remember what happened to him? Well, Daniel endures multiple administrations of political government, always able to serve, even through some of the worst cases, right? Nebuchadnezzar, remember Belshazzar, and then under Darius, who's a king from the Medo-Persian Empire, kind of a different, he starts out as a Babylonian, and the Medes and the Persians conquer him, remember? And everybody's jealous of Daniel. Why? Well, the king is probably going to put him up into a very high position. And so they come up with this law that if you, you know, if you don't worship the king for a month, then, uh, you know, you're going to go to a lion's den. That's the story. So what does Daniel do? Well, it's a, it's a God versus men thing, right? 
he opens his window. He doesn't change a thing, does he? <laughs> and he prays to the Lord, just like he did before. Didn't, didn't change it. Obviously, that is an issue. However, listen, when we disobey the civil authorities, we're also to be aware that there can be consequences. Right? And in this case, it was persecution. God delivered Daniel, and God has delivered many through persecution. Some, he, he didn't deliver them. They became martyrs for him. That's happened. It's happened throughout history. We're, it's not really on our horizon here. We don't see it because it's not in the church that we see, but it's happening. I wanted to finish, and I think I'll finish the day with this little story as I'll read it to you. I think I told you a little bit about Georgie Vins a few weeks back. He was a Russian Baptist pastor. And I, I alluded to the fact that I'd like to share more about him. And I would. Because this is not too many years ago in the world that we know, the modern world. And I'd like to just read a little bit about persecution that took place in the former Soviet Union. Two of all people, Baptists, okay? So just listen for a minute. I, I'm getting this article from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Uh, a young lady, Simonita Carr, wrote this. This ministry, by the way, George Evans's ministry, I had a chance of uh, when I was, I think this was in the 90s, um, talking with them quite a bit. They came to our church, and I think we have books in our camper. We like to get some literature for vacation reading, and by his daughter, Natasha Vins. So let me just read this, because this is in the modern day, where individuals had to mitigate this whole process of how do we deal with government and conscience. So, listening as I read... The anti-religious propaganda in Russia started with Lenin, who believed that atheism was the logical outcome of a capitalism-free society. Realizing that an all-out attack to the churches would be counterproductive in a country that was still profoundly religious, Lenin focused on programs that could convince the people that God was a human invention. These efforts intensified under Joseph Stalin, who promoted the League of the Militant Godless to storm the heavens, as he said, and destroy any religious belief through a mass production of posters, booklets, and film that denied the existence of God. Churches were turned into museums of atheism. In 1931, the government blew up the Cathedral of Christ, the Savior, in, a Mos in Moscow as a display to the world. While allowing some churches to stay open, they required all Protestants to join into one denomination, the All-Union Council of Evangelical Christian Baptists. Okay? Those who agreed to the Union soon realized that this acceptance came with a long list of restrictions. The government kept the churches under strict supervision, forbidding all activities except for Sunday worship. 
A ban was issued on all catechism classes, study or prayer groups, and a type of evangelization, including the production and distribution of religious publications. Those who broke these rules were sent to prisons or work camps. Some were killed. Persecution reached an all-time high during the so-called Great Purge of 1936-38. These measures against churches were temporarily relaxed in the last years of Stalin's rule after his death in 1953, but became even more stricter six years later under the rule of, remember this, Nikita Khrushchev, probably some throwback names here. Vins was imprisoned during this time. Vins was one of many Christians who believed that abiding by the government's impositions forced the churches to disobey God's command to bring the gospel to others. In most churches, membership was declining until there were only a few old women left in the churches. In 1965, he became secretary of a newly formed movement. This is George Evans, the Council of Evangelical, or the Council of Churches of Evangelical Christians-Baptists, that focused on evangelization. When the government forbade public worship, he and his congregation worshiped in private homes or in a forest outside of Kiev. In the following years, he wrote books to explain his position, Religious Dissent in Russia in 1968 and Faith on Trial in Russia, 1971. The religious persecution affected every Christian. Vinz's daughter, Natasha, was singled out at school where her third grade teacher scorned her in front of the whole class for believing in God. A behavior the teacher considered primitive and unscientific. My classmates had discovered that I was strikingly different from everyone else, and our relationships changed, she said. In our class of 30 kids, I was the only one from a Christian family. That day, at the age of nine, I became an outcast among the children. Vince had prepared his family for such trials, as well as for the possibility of losing their father. The police might come to one of our meetings, arrest me, and take me to prison because I preached from the Bible, he explained. He knew the children were still too young to understand everything that was happening. Just remember, the most important thing, your parents love Jesus and want to live according to the Bible. Inns was arrested in 1966, sentenced to three years in prison. He spent the first year in Lafortovo prison and the other two in a labor camp in the Ural Mountains. After his release, he returned to his ministry but was arrested again in 1974 and sentenced to 10 years in prison. As many other Christians who were imprisoned, he soon realized that his imprisonment provided him with opportunities to share the gospel. When the authorities, concerned about his influence on other prisons, moved him to other prison camps, this allowed him to bring the gospel to a new group of people In 1979, he was placed in a cell with 20 murderers who questioned his claim that he was in prison simply for being a Christian. They asked him if he had a Bible. As a matter of fact, he had a copy of the Gospel of Mark that he had been able to keep hidden from the authorities. While he slept, exhausted from the hardships of the day, his cellmates sat on the floor reading the Gospel. It so happened a week later, Vins was moved again, and the men asked him to leave his copy of the gospel with them. At first, he refused, not wanting to part with his only portion of the scriptures, but they insisted so much that he complied. 
What he didn't know was that he was going to be flown out of Russia to the United States to a surprise. His hotel room in the States had a copy of the Bible in a drawer. I thought this was a very good article. This is a true story, by the way. Uh, President Carter negotiated his release in 1979, and he came back. Had a lot of years of ministry here in our country. The reason I like to read things like this is because I think sometimes we think that this cannot happen in the modern world. And all we can say is it already has, and it already is, okay? But as Christians, we, our approach isn't like the zealots of the first century. You know, a lot of folks want to jump on those bandwagons. We have a kingdom that's much bigger, much more powerful, much greater. And in our rhetoric, we have to be careful what we latch on to. We want people to see the kingdom of the gospel of peace. We want to be about Christ, his word, his work. I know we didn't finish. There's actually much more to go, but I think we're going to wrap it up for today. What a blessing it is to be a part of this congregation, to share his word with this group of people. Thank you for listening today. Let's just pray together as we bend to close our service. Our Father, um, sometimes our perspectives are off and we need to refocus. Help us to be as the body of Christ, not a divided unit, but a united unit where we see this world with different eyes, maybe not so driven by the talking points of all the news programs, but rather driven by the talking points from your holy word. We pray your blessing on each one of us as we go your way. Use us for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.